started. Thanks for coming. Mercifully, it's a rather small, friendly crowd. Very good. All right. I will get us started in prayer. Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the opportunity we have tonight to look into your written word, preserved through the apostles and your sovereign providence. You've made it possible for us to hold within our hands your written word, which points us to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the way in which you have used the scriptures to bring us into the experience of fellowship with you and with your son and with all the dear believers. We pray that you help us better, be better able to speak the truth in love and at all times to all people. We pray that you grant us increased blessings of joy, holiness, and insurance that are addressed in this letter of 1 John. We pray that we come to desire fellowship with you above all things. We pray that you help us to know you better, Father, by increasing our ability to pray as we ought. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, we abide in you and you in us. Lord, may you abide in, we may, may we abide in you and you in us. Your will be done. We pray these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Okay. Um, First John. Um, I need to tell you, I uh, didn't get all the way all the slides done that I that I wanted to. So, friend of the crowd, just remind me we have 15 minutes left to go to that, leave that for questions because I'm sure there's going to be some verses in here. There's some kind of seeming uh, difficult verses in here, and I'm not going to address all of them on the slide slides. So we'll leave 15 minutes at the end for questions, and, and, and specifically if you have any verses that we are hoping to get to that we didn't. If I don't know the answer, our walking uh, theological dictionary is here. So we should be able to get them answered. Um, Christian certainties uh, is, is a, a, the main focus of First John, and it is polemic too in a, in a, in a sense, but the main purpose is, is uh, so we can be sure of things and that we can uh, have assurance and we can have uh, joy. Um, so why study it? It's to increase our joy, our holiness, and, and, and assurance. Um, you can see uh, right off the bat, verse 4, he writes that our joy may, may, may be complete. And John 15, 11 also addresses that. I put that verse on here. Uh, These things I have spoken to you that, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We're also going to increase our holiness um, that you may not sin. That's verse uh, 2-1. That reads, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and the life is in his son. Holiness will be increased. Uh, I'm sorry, assurance will be increased. And uh, that is verse 513. And uh, that reads, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I am. Yes, unfortunately, it is being laid down on tape. <laughs> okay. Thanks for that. All right. Uh, this is one verse here that helps set the background and setting. Um, 1 John 5.19. I think it's very uh, applicable to today. Uh, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Uh, this whole book, like the Gospel of John, is written in uh, 
stark contrast, darkness and light, uh, belief and unbelief. Um, this, to me, when I see you know, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, made me think of Genesis 3.1, you know, which is an, indeed has God said. It's always the same Satan's go-to deception. Always question the word of God. And uh, that's what we see going on here in this epistle. John 1 says, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And we know where that led. We live in a Genesis 3 world. It's a fallen world. But this is nothing new. Um, as we read in Ecclesiastes 1.9, that which has been is that which will be, and which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. And... Uh, the reason I picked this verse for, for background and setting, too, is it just seems uh, um, it's written to people, you know, we know it's written to people who live in an extremely difficult and contradictory world. The Apostle John is very old, and he knows his time on earth is, is short, and he wants to, uh, his dear children and grandchildren to know what they should do in such a world with all its contradictions, troubles, and problems. So how applicable? I mean, we live in a contradictory world today. Uh, and we are the peculiar ones. And hopefully we can take comfort in the fact that we have, uh, uh, we're not confronting anything new, and we thank God that there's provision for perplex perplexities and difficulties. And I don't know how people can say that the Bible isn't relevant anymore, and I think generally it's because they don't read it, and they don't know it. <laughs> um, give it a little more background here yet. This I found interesting when I was studying. And it's a full-time job. I understand why, Bob, why you and Eric uh, know the Bible so well after doing this for so long. My goodness gracious. It's almost like a full-time job. No TV for me recently. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're underpaid, Bob. So this was interesting. You know, we know this, but I guess I hadn't thought about it. You guys probably have read the whole thing by now, so I, I won't. Uh, go through the trouble. Well, I guess for recording purposes I will, but this is from Acts 20, 28, and 31. We know that Paul founded the church in Ephesus, and this was on his third missionary journey, right, Bob? If I say so? Third? So what I, yes, what? he was on his way back. Yeah, yeah he was on his way back with his offering. He's just testing you. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I can probably fail the test. Okay. So that was like in 53 to 57 A.D. And this epistle was written in, in about 90, and a lot of people seem to think even 97 A.D. Um, so that journey was 53 years uh, bef before that. And we know the church has been established because he, 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 brings, uh, he calls for the Ephesian elders before he leaves. So there's been a church established long enough to have some elders. And I just found it interesting uh, to, to, for background to, to look at this and say, my goodness, was this prophecy? If you see, I've got I know hi highlighted in red. Um, um, hmm? I'm sorry, up there it is red, yeah. Thanks for watching out for me, hon, that's fine. It's just like I'm at home. <laughs> I'm always wrong there, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, 
So anyhow, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Among, from, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And that's exactly what happened 40, 50 years later, more like 50 years later. These are people from within, these, these uh, people that are apostate, um, it's, it's not a threat from outside the church. These are uh, believers in Ephesus or pro professed believers anyways. And so I just found this very, very interesting. And I, I also, it doesn't show up. Oh, it does. Good, good. Better than my computer monitor. The blue, where I like where it says be on guard and be on the alert. Um, um, Turn around behind uh -oh. you there and plug Did I get that it? in again. I knew I was going to do that. I'm surprised yeah, you... Yeah, that one's uh, kind of touchy. Got to send a short leash. So, um, it's interesting. Is this is this uh, prophecy, would you think, Bob? I mean, when, 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 when he says, I know, or is that just a good guess? So I've got some... I've no, got I think some, it's uh, as God's apostle. He knew what was going... He, you know, the Lord had given him Either that about this, and he warned him about it anyhow. Mm -hmm. But it still happened. It happened, regardless. It happened, and it could have been from experience as well. Um, what he anticipated did materialize. So this is uh, from Acts, uh, the exhortation to Ephesian elders, and I just came across it and thought I'd put it back up there. We're getting uh, back to the background material authorship and recipients, I think that uh, we don't need to spend hardly any time here at all. It, it doesn't, the, just to touch on this issue a little bit, it doesn't have, uh, the authors never identifies himself, but that's the same. John doesn't really either in his gospel, and we don't in, the, in Hebrews. Uh, in First and Second John, John states the elder at the, at the beginning of his, of his thing. But it, it's been, since uh, church, early church history, um, it's been thought and uh, believed uh, that it is John is the apostle. And uh, there's writings by Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, uh, and Tertullian that, uh, um, secular writings that confirm it. And I say in here uh, that John was addressing, the recipients was addressing a community, community made up of a number of house churches in and around Ephesus, which was split in three ways. And what I mean by that, uh, there were three groups, and um, they are, oops, sorry. There's uh, jo Johannine Christians who were committed to the apostolic gospel. And I gotta get my cursor back. Maybe I'm going the wrong way. Where is it? There it gotta is. come this way. Whoa. That's good, I want it to disappear. Now I gotta find it here. <laughs> it's on the screen up here. It is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Left is right and right is left. Uh, there it is. I got it. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not a dentist. Okay. So we have uh, Johannine Christians who are committed to the apostolic uh, gospel of Jesus that they'd received. And then you've got heretically inclined members of uh, Jewish background. And uh, then you've got unorthodox or heterodox uh, followers from a Hellenistic background. And uh, uh, so those are the three groups that were, were uh, written to. And the groups B and C, 
the second and third groups um, were primarily theological and ethical. Let's see, the problems that were re relating to those two groups. So, and that's our Gnostics. All right, it was written between 85 and 97. Most people seem to, the current modern scholars seem to think it was written more like in AD 97. And I just want to point out here what I have underlined that uh, one John, uh, uh, it follows the writing of John's gospel uh, that one John seems to assume. So the thought is that John at the end of his ministry, at the end of his life, he wrote all of his writings. Uh, you can correct me, Bob, if you, if, if you understand it differently, but from Ephesus, other than Revelation, that was from Patmos, but John 1, 2, and 3, he read, he wrote relatively close to each, or the gospel, and then, then his three epistles relatively closely. And if you look at, and I found this out when I was studying this, the, the epistle of 1 John really assumes uh, uh, that, uh, that it follows so closely in so many ways to, to his gospel, you need to have a background of his gospel in order to have a clear understanding of this epistle. And we'll reference quite a few of those John gospel writings today. Here I talk about that some more. There, there, a lot of this gospel has an upper room discourse in, uh, influence. And I uh, pulled out chapter, or verses uh, 14, 16, and 17 here. It says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and you will be in him. Both the Gospel of John and the first epistle of John deal with the subject of eternal life. John wrote his gospel so that his readers might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing they may have eternal life through his name, and that's John 20, 31 for a reference. But John wrote this epistle to Christians so that they could have fellowship with the apostles, with God the Father, and with Jesus Christ. And we see that in one, uh, John 1, 3, and that's coming up here. He, he wrote that we might enter into the fullness of eternal life that we possess now and forever. And uh, however, the subject of this epistle is not eternal life, but fellowship with God. Fellowship with God is the essence of eternal life. Okay, still background here, the heresies that, uh, that John was dealing with. I think you guys have heard this ad nauseum, haven't we? Uh, but we'll touch on it for those that aren't that familiar. Um, the false seasons that were being alluded to by John in here um, are Judaism, and uh, as Bob has been teaching us, uh, we're talking about law works, legalism. You know, of course, that was something that Paul was always fighting. Um, and Bob has done such a great job in Galatians, letting us know we are not saved by our works. And then we have the foreshadowing of Gnosticism. It's not uh, full-blown. This is in Serenthia, or Sir Inthus. Am I saying that anywhere close? Serinthus um, was John's contemporary, and uh, um, he was, John was probably had him in mind a lot when he was writing. But Gnostic means knowledge, it's a, a Greek word for knowledge, and this particular Gnostic knowledge is a spe special kind of spiritual enlightenment. They thought they were a higher 
uh, group of people that had special knowledge. And then uh, another form of, uh, of it is docetism, and that's from the Greek word dokio, probably, probably butchering that pronunciation, and that means to seem or appear. So false teachers were preaching information about Christ that was not true, and John wrote to combat their deception. So it's written to a believing community that is dealing with fallout from the departure of persons with beliefs and practices that the author cannot endorse. And that's verse 219, they went out from us because they were never of us. Um, here's a layman's definition of Gnosticism. For us lay people, I'm a lay teacher. <laughs> I got a lay definition. Just for a little bit better understanding. Uh, a base, the basic conviction which pervaded uh, Gnostic thought was this, that spirit is good and matter is bad. That the spirit in man is good. <laughs> These people are not Christians, are they? Uh, spirit in man is good, but it has a problem because it's locked in a body, and body and, and body and matter is a real problem. Gnostics had a real issue over bodily, historic, real Jesus, who was at the same time God, because how could God do that? How could, how, how could God, who is spirit, which is good, inhabit any real sense which is bad? So that's full-blown Gnosticism. We weren't quite dealing with that here. Um, it led to all kinds of conclusions. Uh, many of the most extreme forms began to suggest the incarnation wasn't real. It wasn't real at all. It wasn't actual, because it couldn't be. Uh, uh, Spirit could not, good spirit could not be an evil matter. Serinthus, John's contemporary, had a different spin on it. It's a little more deceptive and a little easier to believe. He basically said that uh, um, spirit was in Christ's body, but it was temporary. Um, he came in at the baptism and left at the crucifixion. So that, you know, is a little more slippery. Satan's at work here, right? Um, um, and we all know the story of uh, John and Polycarp at the bathhouse. Anybody here not know it? I can tell it. Oh, about, about uh, John the Apostle going to the bathhouse in Ephesus? Okay, good. <laughs> I'll tell it then. Polycarp, who was a disciple of sorts of John. Yeah. Yeah. They were born the same, er, Polycarp was younger than John. Everyone was. He was practically 100. <laughs> but um, he writes, uh, he's a his secular historian. That's trustworthy in most senses. Not, not, it's not scripture. But uh, he writes this incident. John, having gone to take a bath in the public, public bathhouse in Ephesus, and having seen Serinthus Sir, inside the bath, refusing to bathe, he said, let us flee. Least also the bass fall in, since Serinthus is inside the enemy of the truth. Uh, so, uh, the sensitivity of John, uh, you know, just think John saw the risen Christ. He was in the upper room, you know, he, he, he saw the risen Christ with the holes in his hands, and he saw Thomas, you know, they touched him, as we see in the beginning of this, of this uh, epistle what we have seen, what we have touched, what we have looked at. I mean, he saw the bodily risen Christ, so he wasn't going to have anything to do with Serenthus nonsense. Um, he didn't want anybody to assume. You don't want to be seen in the same bath with him. You don't want anybody to assume that, that Serenthus had any sort of credibility or anything to do with what John had going. And I think there's a little bit of a, 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 of a uh, um, 
we can take an application out of that for ourselves. Sometimes we have leaders that we respect and they're up there on stage with people who are doing Lecto Divina and everything else and it's like, really? I mean, I mean we can't kick all the, you know, there is sometimes a baby in the bathwater, but boy, we need to be careful uh, with who we associate, especially leaders that are prominent. And we see so many of them now uh, getting up on stage with people that we know just are not telling the truth. So I, I think it's a good application to take out of John. He just wasn't going to let anybody assume he gave him any credibility. Um, all right. Bob, I did this for you, and I thought Eric would be here. I know you can't see it. A chiasm. For an outline for uh, uh, um, First John. Okay. Um, it's important to discuss the, the outline briefly because it helps clarify this epistle. I picked this one just because Bob, Eric and Bob love chiastic structures. But this one, as Bob can testify too, is that it's very hard to do an outline for this particular epistle because of the way it's written and it doesn't follow logic. He jumps from thought to thought. And, and, um, but I had to put this up there. Bob's eyes got as big as saucers. You've just seen him here. So he, you can check this one out later. Um, but there's something interesting about, uh, I don't know if I have it on this slide or not. Yes, I do. Um, this outline reflects the structure of a typical deliberative orientation that was common in John's world. Now, we're in Ephesus. This is the center of philosophy. This is where Paul practically, you know, they started the riot, and, uh, you know, he went to Mars Hill, and he debated with all the philosophers, so there's all kinds of philosophy here, and lots of rhetoric going on with different ideas and such. In John's day, if you were involved in a debating society and you were going to make a point with great conviction, then it was rhetorical substance to do so by making your point and clarifying and expanding upon it by making four correlative statements. And it appears more than likely that John writes this letter in the culture of his day, and he writes it in a way, uh, his, in this way, uh, he's doing that very thing. He's doing that very thing. He's, he's making four cor correlative statements. Uh, he applies the clauses that he makes over and over again four different times in his initial statement in the first four, first four verses, coincidentally enough. Um, and by that he's saying, my testimony is irrefutable in, in, in the rhetoric of his day. And so this adds creeds. This is a chiastic structure, and I put that up. I told you just so we can stick with chiastics. And, uh, but a lot of the outlines, MacArthur's outlines, and a myriad, just many, many of them, uh, use this four-cycle outline. And what's meant by that, he brings up the same four uh, arguments, or same arguments four different times as he goes, goes through. Um, and if you want to check, if you have a McCarthy uh, a study Bible, and you read the front of it, 1 John and reference that, he uses that um, outline as well. So the idea that in John's day that they reiterated things four times, that was rhetorical substance, I think adds credence and gives us some light as to why he 
goals of these four cycles. And some of them think that, you know, he goes out. I don't know, if, uh, you know, in the cycles he keeps expanding out uh, this way they look at it. And other ones say that he keeps drilling in, you know. I mean, he keeps drilling deeper. And either way, he's expounding more and more on the scriptures and going deeper into each idea. This... It's debatable, but uh, this is what I went with, are, are the primary and secondary purposes. There are more than just two purposes in this epistle. He, he's got five statements uh, that says, I am writing these things because, uh, but primary and secondary purposes, I believe, come out of uh, verses three and four of chapter one. They, uh, um, and that, that reads, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, we proclaim to you also, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, so that our joy be, be, may be made complete. Um, fellowship with God is the essence of eternal life. The main theme of the epistle is fellowship with God. Um, Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 7 through 14 that his relationship with God was the most important thing in his life by far. And it just, I read it and it was so meaningful to me. I've got that coming up here in just a couple slides, that uh, scripture. Um, John wrote this epistle to enable his believers to appreciate uh, our fellowship with God. And he wrote to deepen that fellowship. The you here also that I have in highlighted in red, you as genuine believers, and uh, also is so, so that we, the believers, could enter in and continue to enjoy the intimate fellowship with him that the apostolic eyewitnesses enjoyed, and that's the us that I have highlighted in red there. These things refers to what John wrote in the entire epistle, okay, and that's uh, agreed upon by, by the scholar. Sometimes there's when we get to 5.13, which uh, is another purpose statement of the epistle, there's some debate about whether he's writing uh, these things just about the debate. Uh, uh, the debate is if he's just writing about the six previous verses or if he's writing about the entire epistle. And I went back and forth as I was researching, and uh, um, um, Daniel Wallace, Bible.net commentaries, got me sold on it that we, it does refer to the whole epistle. Um, let's see here. Not only would, our, would us, the readers, experience full joy, but so would John as, as he enters, uh, uh, as the readers entered into the continued intimate fellowship with God. And that's the us there again. Joy is a product of fellowship with God. Where there is no joy, there is no fellowship. It's one of the things we'll be looking at here today. This is Paul's desire out of Philippians 3, 7, 14, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you'll get the gist with just a few of the verses. But whatever things were gained to me, I, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I'll stop there. It goes on, but it's just uh, lets us know how much uh, his relationship with 
Christ meant to him, and that's fellowship. Paul was a good example. That just continues there. I'll skip through that. Uh, this is still commenting on, on, on verses uh, 1, 3, and 4. And this is from a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I know he's got a few issues with a couple of things. Uh, I don't know if, it, if anyone, of, all of you are familiar with Dr. Mort, Martin Lloyd-Jones or not. Um, won't go into the, some differences that we have with them, but there are a couple. Basically, the second blessing kind of thing, or he's a little, he leans a little bit charismatic, yeah. But he's got a lot of good preaching. But this is a quote from him. Here we are given without any hesitation a description, description, the sumum bonum, which means uh, the highest or chief good of the Christian life. Here indeed is the whole object, the ultimate goal, the goal of all Christian experience and Christian endeavor. This is beyond all question, is the central message of the Christian gospel and the Christian faith. Now I had to think about that for a while. Say, really, is that the gospel? Well, yeah, it is. Uh, uh, um, it is eternal fellowship with the Father and His Son and all the saints. That is the gospel. If you, if, if, if you read 1, 3, and 4, you, and you look, well, you can get the gospel out of any verse, right? And so what we have seen and what we heard, we proclaim to you also. This is the verse. So that you may have fellowship with us. So there's Christology, Right? That's what Christ, what he's done for us. They saw the crucified, resurrected Christ. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so your joy may be, may be complete. He's saying we're going to have eternal fellowship with the Father. That's salvation through his resurrected Son. So I just think it's, it's really awesome to think about eternal fellowship with the Father and his Son, with all the saints forever. It is, it is the ultimate. Mike? Yes, sir. Ma'am. While you're while you're on this verse, particularly, I have to tell you, I was in a a, a study and um, with a, a, a Jewish person who understood um, the background of Greek and Jewish words, particularly, and it was made clear to me that what he's really talking about here is that our finest joy is to be super glued. Ah. That's what it's talking about. Amen. Fellowship is being super glued to Christ. Love it. Thank you, Pat. All right. Here are three more purposes in one John. We see the joy again. These things we write that your joy may be made complete. So the first purpose is that we may have full joy. Um, second one. I'm writing these things that you may not sin. That's holiness. It's required for fellowship. And these things are, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. That's assurance. That's the third purpose. Oops, I did it again. What's that? Really? Like if I pull it over this way, I'd be in good shape. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's writing to believers that they may have full joy, holiness, and assurance. So those are three main themes. And the keys to the fulfillment of those purposes are 
we see in verse 323a, this is his commandment that we believe in the, in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. We need to have a correct Christology. If you're going to expect the benefit of this epistle, you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ, the true Jesus, Jesus Christ, not the Gnostic or the, the Gnostic Christ. Uh, we have to love one another just as he commanded, verse 323b. Secondly, that's a command. He commands us not, to, not only to believe, but to love one another. It's one of, the, one of the keys. And the other key is uh, to keep his commandments. Again, commandments, commandments, commandments. Thirdly, in verse 24, we're commanded to obey, to keep his commandments. And I, I've got John uh, 14, 20, no, I've got 324 here, and I reference 1421. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and we in and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. That, so, um, and then John 14, 21, many of you probably know. I think it's one of the first verses that we learn. Uh, he who has my commandments and keeps them is one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and disclose myself to him. So it just reaffirms. Um, three main components of saving knowledge of God, faith in Christ, that's doctrine. We've got to have good doctrine. Obedient response to God's commands, that's holiness. Love for God and others as he loves us, that's joy, assurance, and fellowship. Uh, the doctrine is correct understanding, the obedience is, we have to have obedience, not antinomianism. <laughs> we don't be just believe and then we live our life like, like, like uh, the law doesn't matter. And the joy, assurance, and fellowship is experiential. We do experience that. Um, we look at verse 5, 11, and 12 here. Our assurance of salvation rests on the testimony of God. Uh, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the content of, of God's testimony. Eternal life is, eternal life is inseparable from the person, person of Jesus Christ. And some of the false teachers seem to have tried to separate them. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and eternal life are one gift from God. Eternal life is qualitative, not quantitative. Um, and also, I just want to mention, verse 12 here is not an offer of eternal life such, such as the, from the Gospel of John, verse 20, and, uh, verses 30 and 31, but it's a confirmation of what God has done for the readers, as uh, the next verse will, will verify here. So, our assurance of salvation rests on the testimony of God. Our assurance of salvation does not rest on the present, uh, presence of spiritual fruit. And I think the tendency with this epistle is when you start digging into it, you'll say, by this we know if we love the brother, by this we know if we keep the commandments, by this we know if uh, uh, we do not sin, by this. And, and I think it can lend itself to a bit of legalism when you get caught into that if you're, if you're not careful. So I just wanted to put this up, and sometimes I think our assurance we look at what we're doing, and our assurance becomes in our works. And that's not true. It is, it's the testimony of God. God saves us. Um, 
So I've got listed down here a proof text for that, John 15, 8, which reads, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So what he is saying, your fruit is proving that you're, you're his disciples, but the faith part is already done. Um, it rests on God's word, not on man's works. Therefore, we can, sure we, ha- we can be sure we have eternal life if we have believed on Jesus Christ. So, we'll move on. Okay, light and fellowship. These are uh, two things that we get from God. And we see them in verses uh uh, five, six, and seven. God is described as light, and what's pictured there is the light of truth and its knowledge. Together with the spiritual, together with spiritual purity associated with it, its holiness. And typical of John's writing, there's clear contrast. That is, you know, uh, light and darkness. Um, This is a message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And in John's gospel and in John's uh, epistle, it's constant contrast, black and white. He's very black and white. There's no gray with John. Um, He is that way throughout his gospel. You have the vine and then you got the the branches that are saved and the branches that are thrown into into the fire. And... uh, if you read John and pay, pay attention to that, he's always making stark contrasts. This letter reveals two things about life of the life of fellowship. First, it reveals the resources of this life, two resources. The first resource is objective. God has provided a pattern for the life of fellowship. That pattern is Christ, and in Christ, we have personified two qualities that are characteristic of God that should also characterize us as children of God. First one of these character qualities is light. Jesus Christ constantly walked in the light of God's holiness. He never hid from God. Uh, he also conformed to the light of God, uh, God's will perfectly. He was submissive, sinless, clean, and consecrated. The second of these qualities is, did I change? I did. Where's my, there we go. Let me do this good. Second resource of life, of fellowship, is subjective. God has not only provided a pattern for the life of fellowship, he's also provided the power. Jesus Christ is not only the external example for us to imitate. More helpfully, he is an eternal power from God. He's an eternal power whom God has placed within us, the Holy Spirit, who is at work in our lives. With eternal life, we get Jesus and we get him, and we get with him two things. We get light, we we see spiritual things that we never saw before, we see how we ought to walk. We become sensitive to sin. And then we get love. We see the need of other people. Um, we see the need uh, of, of other people who are groping in darkness, and we desire to reach out to them in service and to bring them into the light. As soon as we share God's life, we begin to love with God, God's love. and we can, we can quench the love, but every person who has eternal life has love within them. I did it again. All right. Now we're going to look at uh, sources of worldly temptation. 
1 John 2.16 tells us that for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. John summarizes the appeal of the world system as threefold. The, the infernal trinity, the three faces of the world, three, three sources of worldly temptation. Um, look at Genesis 3 again. Lusts are cravings or desires, and in the context here, uh, they are evil because they are not in harmony with God's will. The lust of the flesh is, is the desire to do something apart from the will of God. It, include, it includes all uh, corrupt bodily desires and every sinful activity that appeals to the sinful hearts. The lust of the eyes is, is the desire to have something apart from the will of God. Whatever is appealing to our senses but is not properly ours to desire or obtain falls under this category. The pride of life is a desire to be something apart from the will of God. It refers to boastful pretenses and earthly matters. We've got to remember, though, that morality is the grounds for assurance, uh, but, but the fruit of it. The Christian threefold enemy, okay? The world, we just read that. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the prideful life. And the solution to that is in 1 Timothy 6.11 and 2 Timothy 2.2. It's told that, told us there. Um, I'm a little, hang on here a minute, guys. The, the second uh, uh, enemy we have is the flesh. We see that explained in Romans 7.18-24. And then the devil, 1 Peter 5.8 through 1 Peter 5.9. Um, The wants which man feels can be, okay, I'm sorry, give me a second. The first desires appeal mainly to the body, the lust of the flesh. The second appeals to the soul or the intellect, and the third to the spirit. And we can all think of uh, perhaps the most common manifestation of lust in the modern Western civilization would be uh, uh, illicit sex, or hedonism, idolizing pleasure, you know, and perhaps the most common manifestation of the lust of the eyes is excessive buying, materialism, idolizing possessions, and uh, perhaps the most common manifestation of pride of life is trying to control egoism or idolizing power. So those are examples of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Does anybody not experience those? <laughs> Me too. So, the wants which man feels can be divided in two great classes. Some things he desires to appropriate personally, and some things he desires to enjoy without appropriation or, or owning them. Um, the desires of the flesh embraces the one, the one class. That's gratification of appetites. Uh, the desire of the eyes, the other one, you don't necessarily need to own these things, but it could be, uh, say, a pursuit of art or something like that. You, know, you don't necessarily need to own it, but it, it uh, is in the second class. The pride of life will be reflected in whatever status symbol is important to me. Um, and my, I may, when I want to define myself to others in terms of honorary uh, 
earned degrees, the reputation of the church I serve, my annual income, the size of my library, my expensive car or house, and, and, and if doing this I misrepresent the truth in my boasting, I show myself to be only a pompous fool who doesn't have, uh, who has decided, I've deceived no one, I'm sorry. And then I have succumbed to what John calls the pride of life. So you're, you really are acting the fool. Now, in 1 John, what, when, when we get into verses that tell us, you know. You did skip one. I did? Oh, I don't want to yeah, be there. About the tem temporal nature. The this one here, right? No, you want to go the other way. There. Whoops. There. That one there. wants to skip. Right oh, there. this one. Yes, yes, yes. Now we're getting to my throwaway slides. Boy, time is going fast. <laughs> I thought I'd only get these. <laughs> I put them in there. I just kind of was working on them and didn't do much with them. I, I, threw, I threw, threw them in at the end. But I just wanted to uh, point out here that these lusts are so short-lived, and, and this life is just for a moment, and eternity is really long time. And... Uh, we see here in John 2.17, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So um, I think as we mature in our spirituality, we have less and less love and less and less desire for these things. And we look back at things that we used to do and say, I can't believe I used to do these things. You know, I'd rather stick needles in my eye. And, uh, um, and the world just becomes one great big lie, does it not? <laughs> it's absolutely, and it's not fooling me too much anymore. And the only thing I can say about that, there's, there can be some sadness when you, when you uh, are being sanctified and uh, the Holy Spirit is working in you and you're coming to know your sanctification. And, and um, I don't say it's sadness you know, necessarily. It's, it's a good sadness to have, but... There, there, I've had so many things that I used to enjoy to do. I used to enjoy to do so many things. I do not enjoy them anymore. And, and um, it just seems to be a waste of time. Uh, golfing. I used to love to golf. I still do. I still do. But I tell you what, it takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And, and, and I just go, my goodness gracious, I don't know if I, and it, I, it would help if my game was a lot better, Peter. Anyway, <laughs> if I, if I, stay, I could stay down in a, a, a single-digit handicap, I'd probably play a lot more. It's a frustrating game, but there's all kinds of things. I sold my convertible. I sold my motorcycles. Um, I even sold my fishing boat. <laughs> I got tired taking that thing in and out all the time. It wasn't all because, I'm not saying all these things are bad, but, but, you do lose your desire for things of the earth. I, I, I'm thinking about buying a new fishing boat, by the way. So. Uh, <laughs> and I am swinging my I am swinging my glove a little bit, but but I think we've all experienced the uh, loss of some of the things we used to enjoy to do. I mean, could you find anything worth watching on the television set? Uh, is there anything? I mean, between the commercials and the content, it's amazing. So. 
hard to remember what you're watching. <laughs> That's very true. Very, very true. I got about five minutes out of that. Let's see what I got here. Okay. Practical sanctification. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? John, in this epistle, is concerned for practical sanctification. Um, we might go back to uh, chapter 2 here. I think I will do it. Take, read this very quickly. I listened to MacArthur um, preach on this. I went to MacArthur when I was doing my research. And I thought, well, John probably said a little something about First John. And I went to gracetougty.org. Well, he preached 42 sermons on First John. <laughs> All of them an hour long. And he has PDFs that are like 10 to 16 pages long on each one of them. You know? So I looked at that resource a little late. Uh, but he said, as we, if we look into First John here, um, I'll start right in the beginning. My little children, am I writing these things to you so that you may not sin? And if anyone sins, this is the part that said had to absolutely kill John to write because he was so black and white and so uh, uh, dogmatic. He really was, and MacArthur expounds very well uh, about that. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is a propitiation of our sin, for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. He said it had to kill John to put this, uh, probably the B part of the verse, and if anyone sins. Because he really was stressing, if you read the, the rest of this epistle, he's saying, we know we have eternal life if we do not sin. We know this is the only place where he barricades a little bit. And he says, well, but if you do sin, you know, we do have a, uh, uh, an advocate. And we, we know we all do sin. He was just really trying to hammer the point, don't take sin lightly. It's destructive. Um, so... That's what, so we have to look at it knowing that Jesus Christ was, is the only sinless one. When we talk about, it says in uh, John here that he who says he has no sin is a liar. Yeah. And so we know that we have sin. But John, on the other hand, says he, he, he commands us not to sin. So we have to look, it's, it has, practically it has to be progress, you know, direction instead of perfection. Um, but John, again, was very not one. It's like a golf instructor. When you're doing something wrong and you take a golf lesson and there's, they want to get to correct you something just a little bit, they have to be really careful about what they tell you because we always overcorrect, <laughs> you know. When they say, oh, just, you know, hold your hands back another half a you know, just a split second before you release him or something. Now we hold him back for a whole minute. We never even really release him. So John is concerned for the same thing. He doesn't want to give his readers a crack to sin. He wants to keep them away for, from it. So practical sanctification. Um, in Corinthians here, chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, 
uh, in anticipation of Paul's judgment, he called on his Christian readers to examine themselves to make sure every one of them was walking in faith. Testing themselves would preclude his having to discipline them. Paul believed that Jesus Christ was working in each one of them unless they failed this test. So there we go for First uh, John, test of First John. Oh, and I'll mention this here since I'm looking at Peg right now. Uh, she has got a fantastic brochure. Has any, everybody seen that uh, kind of testimony uh, that Peg worked on? She, he, she did a brochure, and it's awesome. You've got, I was going to call you and tell you to bring a bunch. Did you just, you brought one. That's great. I think everyone should see it. She gave me one, and I, I referred to it. Um, but it's all about First John and, uh, and uh, the letter of James, about test yourself in uh, um, he, she did a great job on that. Um, so where was I? Testing themselves would preclude his having to dis discipline them. So, you know, um, Paul believed that Jesus Christ was working in each one of them unless they failed this test. I think it's the mind same mindset for John when he's writing his epistle. He's telling them not to sin, but um, he wants to see that they are, they, they are showing fruits. In this case, can I make a little yes. discussion on that? Yeah, please I was do. Looking at that chiasm, that's new to me. Hadn't seen that. And the emphatic position is the first one, the middle one, and the last one. Okay. Usually they're very similar, or the same. Yes, right. And so it's about love and about eternal life. Now, you might start thinking, well, is, is John going even talking about what Paul always talks about, which is justification? and um, having the righteousness of Christ and so on. But if you look at this section, maybe one slide back there. Um, 217 or? Well, you were talking about verse, chapter 2 and verse 1. Anyone sins? Yes. But if you look back yes. a little oh. bit, you have actually in John both expiation and propitiation. Okay. And so he does talk about justification. Because it says, we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us. That word cleanse is for expiation. Expiation. Right. But then it says in 2.2, that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Yeah. So in Christ, we have both expiation cleansing and propitiation, appeasing God's wrath against sin. So it would be incorrect to say John has doesn't deal with that. He very much does. Mm -hmm. He gives us how we have the right standing before God. Right. So propitiation, and I know it took me a while to get those straight in my head because sometimes a lot of commentators say they're synonyms. And, and they really aren't. I mean, there's similarities, no. but they're not synonyms. No. Propitiation, propitiation comes from a mercy seat idea. Propitiation is the appeasement, the satisfaction to God for the, for the, for the, from, from the Christ's sacrifice. His, it was, we were appeased. The wrath of God was appeased. And expiation, I think of it as a covering over of the sins, our sins. Propitiation being God-centered. His, his wrath was appeased, 
and expiation being man-centered, our sins were covered. Close? Or is it cleansed? Yeah, expiation, uh, I think you refer to as it's, it's where we get over catharsis. If you look in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, they had the scapegoat. They laid the hands on, here's the sin, out into the wilderness, so it goes away. It's even better than covered. It really, not that we're sinless, but it's taken away. So is it a and washing, a cleansing? It, is that what you, was that yeah, what you said? Yeah, it's a cleansing, yeah. like catharsis. Okay. Was that? Where Eric talked about our sin being as far away as the east is from the west. Yeah. And so he had the scapegoat. And then the high priest went in to the holiest place mm -hmm. and poured out the blood of the, for the sacrifice on the mercy seat, Hilasterion, mm -hmm. which is where we get our word for propitiation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So both ideas were in the Day of Atonement. And both ideas are right here in John. And actually, it's pretty rare that Paul talks about expiation. I was looking that up once, digging around in the Greek, found it in Hebrews and in John more than you do in Paul. Well, I found it interesting. Uh, we mentioned Martin Luther a lot around here, especially Bob. And um, he thought the uh, epistle of Paul, the, or I'm sorry, the letter of uh, um, James. James, he thank didn't you. Like it. He did not like it. He called it a, a letter of straw, did he not? He, he thought didn't like it because the Catholics always referred to it about justified by works. That justified by works. And I, I find it surprising that he didn't see that here in First John. You know, I mean, because I, I think there's a lot of similarities, you know, uh, but I'm not as a good a scholar as he was. He obviously saw the difference, but... I often wonder why he didn't pick on First John if he was going to pick on James. All right. I was working on this, didn't get it done. This is out of chapter 4. Um, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Um, the demonstration of, of love by God is our model for showing love to one another. As God manifests love uh, among us, then by sending Jesus Christ, so he manifests his love among us now as we love one another. And the idea here is, I'll run this by everybody, we can, we can discuss it, but Whenever we love one another, we make it possible for God to abide in close fellowship with us. I mean, we're taking his love and we're loving somebody else, and his love needs an object too, right? So, so this is what I'm wrestling with here. God's love reaches a fullness and depth in us that is possible only when we love one another. Now, that kind of makes it sound like he's not completely in one of his attributes possibly that we can kind of add to anything that God has. So I'm throwing that out there for conversation. Let's see, there are three stages of God's love in 1 John. These stages are, uh, are love manifested to the world in, uh, uh, in verse, verse 4, 9, and love given to the family of God in 3, 1, and love for perfected in a smaller group within the family, that is, those who abide in God, and that's in 412. 
Now, throwing this out for discussion, the love of God does not re reach perfection until it finds objects of love beyond itself. When it does, God, whom no one has seen, will be visible in the manif manifestation of love. Who said that? Uh, this would have been, I don't know, I got it from Constable. I got it off of, uh, I, but, and he references a lot of different people, and I don't have the reference, Bob. Yeah. There's a, you gotta be careful. Yeah. Um, anytime we, when we're talking about the doctrine of God. Yeah. And the truth. Adding anything to him. From all eternity that, as, as I understand it, God is totally uh, complete in himself. Right in all things, in total perfection. That we are created beings in his image who can share in those communicable attributes is a sign of, of God's great love and compassion and mercy. But we, we always want to be a little careful about adding to any idea that there's any lack in incompleteness. God. We want to right. affirm the other as well as the fact John is saying here, we haven't seen God. And it says in Peter, we, we haven't seen Christ, but we love him. But we do see one another. And so God's love has worked out practically as we fulfill the law of Christ and bearing one another's burdens. Yeah, so I guess, there, you know, as, as a lay person reads it, his love is perfected in us. Would be, need some work. You have to do a little bit of digging in as to what the what the Greek is and what the tense of the verbs and everything, all that good grammatical stuff means, but I agree that we cannot add anything to God. He's complete in himself. He doesn't yeah, need anything outside of himself. Too, yeah. and, and, um, but the idea is that he loves us, we love other people, and um, the love of God is demonstrated in that. Oh, good. Hello. Yes. Thank you. I don't know if we have the same question. Are we the same? Except the one who is at the Father's side, he's made him known. Um, so that's, that's how we know love. It's, it's Which verse are you looking at, Nancy? Um, the book of John. Oh, John. Okay, yeah. Yeah, verse 19, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And that's that you said. Yeah. You, I, I must have it wrong. I got 1918, not correct? Which verse? Which chapter? John 1. 1918. All right. You guys are all settled on it, and I haven't found it. So, I'm just affirming what you're saying. This is a testimony of John. Uh, John 1, 19, 18 and 19. No one has seen God any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Okay, correct. Oh, yeah. Yep. Mine says explained him. Mm -hmm. Mine too. He has explained him. 
So yes, that does say the same thing. And again, that does give credence to the fact that, you know, John goes back to his gospel and a lot of points yeah. that, he, that he makes. Surely, you had a different question than that. I knew I'd hit at least one hot button. This one was pretty easy here, you know, so, yeah. I um, was hoping to hit a few more. But go on to slide 27 of 27. I whipped through these pretty quick. Um, and this was just something that was on my own heart, prayer. Um, and I think we all wish that we had a better prayer life. Um, we go to chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, which I will do. Let's all do it. I was working on this. I don't have it down here. I believe it has to do with assurance. Yes. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears, hears us in whatever uh, we ask, we know that we have the request which he has asked, we have asked from him. Now again, MacArthur, I listened to him teach on this a little bit, and, and he equated um, hearing with answered prayer. It's, a, it's the same thing. When God hears our prayer, they're answered. Might not be the answer we want, of course, you know, but hearing is, this, with God, is the same as answering. Because if we're going to pray, in, we always pray in his will, according to his will. Anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we're praying according to his will, it's heard and it's answered. Not Mercedes, Benz, or anything, uh, uh, health and wealth, or prosperity-wise, but in his will. Health and wealth, in my mind, is dictating to God what he's going to do. You know, you, you, you uh, create things with your words. It's a terrible heresy. You're dictating to God what, what he should do. It's eventually witchcraft. Hmm. Uh, actually, by that explaining, I mean, you mean uh, they're, they're making up a secret potion <laughs> with their words, basically? Oh, yeah, <laughs> speak whatever you wish in existence. That's witchcraft. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's mind over matter. And it's also very presumptuous. I guess. Because yeah. God's providential will, which leads to our 
great benefit, perfection, saying ultimately or sanctification, mm. is unknown until as until it unfolds in history. So we might pray diligently that this certain outcome will happen in this way. That may not be God's providential will. Right. And the Bible says the will of God is our sanctification. And my sanctification may very well be furthered more greatly by some outcome that's not the one I was looking for. Yeah, it's the old saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? Uh, He's going to change them. Yeah, yeah. I haven't heard that one. Oh, yeah. Getting back to this verse, a uh, little commentary on a prayer is another expression of the believer's trust in Jesus Christ and confidence toward God. And we could look at uh, verse 321. Why don't we do that? Or I can and read it. Verse 321 reads, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So there's the confidence reference again uh, that's used in uh, 5, 14, and 15. Um, to do something in the name of another means to act on the authority of that person. Prayer is, is not a battle, but a response. Its powers consist in lifting our wills to God, not in trying to bring his will down to us. We're praying in his will, not our own. Jesus uh, uh, teaches us to pray, thy will be done, not thy will be changed. In the preceding uh, context, the subject is mainly obedience to the will of God. That's in, in, in uh, you can check verses 3b uh, through 13 there. John's point is that whenever we need help, but practically uh, help in obeying God, we can ask for it in prayer confidently. Let me say that again. Um, whenever we need help, we can pray, but practically help in obeying God. That's what we need to pray for. We can answer that confidently. He conditioned the promise with whatever, in verse 15, with according to his will, with whatever we, you know is according to his will, is what we're saying there. God hears all prayers, of course, because he is omniscient. However, he hears them in the sense that he hears them favorably because we are his children asking for help to do his will. He will always grant that kind of request. So that is about it for what I prepared. I do have some other things we can look to, but it's 8.15. And if anybody has any questions or comments, Christy. Can I just also add one um, verse at the end of John 5? Mm -hmm. um, oh. Well, two. Um, just because I think that this is um, a comfort to me because I don't know about you, but I struggle with sin. <laughs> and so yes, right. Some of this feels really heavy. Um, but it says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. And of course, that's, like you said, the direction, not the perfection, but he, not being Christ, who is born of God, keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Yeah. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him 
who is true, and his son Jesus Christ. So it just, to me, it helps. And it's um, that was John five eighteen through um, twenty mm -hmm. that he does keep us, even though we do kind of fall into that um, mud puddle sometimes. That we can be assured that he will keep us. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because um, John five. Uh, especially at the end of it when we get to verses uh, 12 and on, it, it, it's really a summation of what he's talked about, basically the whole chapters, but particularly at the end, a summation of, of, the, of the doctrines and, and everything that he taught. So there's a lot in this epistle, and I'm sorry guys, there's, there's so much in this, it's hard to cover the whole epistle in an hour and a half, and I was really struggling. Um, because of the way it was written and just trying to nail down all the concepts and present them, but there is so much assurance in this, in this epistle. Um, that's, if you read 5.13, and we did read that earlier. I think, Christy, you just read it, did you not? Um, that was part of what you read. But well, that, uh, 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him. And then it go, launches into the prayer part of, uh, of what we just discussed. But going further on to where you were, and we have an interesting verse here I see we can talk about. We've got a few minutes left, um, and, and we can try and sort that one out. You picked up at 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins. That is a heavy verse. When we, we sit and examine ourselves, the, the closer we get to God, the more sanctified we become, the more we see our sin. And, and you know, the, the more holy God becomes. And, I mean, can't you just agree with Luther and say, what a worm I am? I'm just a worm. <laughs> and... And so it's good to know that we that, that our confidence is in, in uh, God, and He has saved us. It's sovereignty. It's not in ourselves. So once saved, always saved. Yeah. Yes, Bob. Well, if I just saw something here. I don't know why I never saw it before quite like this. But when you were in chapter three, and we were asking in prayer. Yes. And. He talks about keeping his commandments. Yes. All right, so he hears us, we keep his commandments. But you keep thinking about that. So you know, I wonder if God will ever hear me. Because mm. I don't know how well I keep his commandments. Right. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, so we're right to hear along the line of sinlessness and all of those details. Mm -hmm. But there's something repeated here from John that I just saw tonight. In, at least in its implications, obviously I've been through this many times. Verse 23, 1 John 3, 23. This is his commandment. So he defines what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Now if you think about it, in John chapter 6, they said, what do we do to do the works of God? This is the work of God. Mm -hmm. You believe in him whom the Father sent. Mm -hmm. And what, is, what did Paul say is the commandment of God as far as the law of Christ, that we bear one another's burdens. Yeah. And so really... Yeah. Is that Ephesians? Or? That was in uh, Galatians 6, 2. Okay. So here yeah. we have 
believe is a command from God that we believe and that we love one another, bear one another's burdens. So here you have the command of God and the law of Christ. Mm. And so our minds are, because we have to deal with the teachers out there. Somebody the other day called and, and told me that somebody who's a reader from afar, that if we're not sinlessly perfect, then we're children of the devil. Mm. Try to prove that from First John. And so, how do you know you're sinlessly perfect? Well, I have no conscious sin right now. Well, that's soft-pedaling what sin is. It isn't sin when we're conscious of it. And it soft-pedals holiness as far as what it ultimately will be. But it's really boiled down to believe in him whom the Father sent, which is a theme, and love one another, which is a theme. In the ones, but that's the commandment. Yeah. Yeah. The obedience is to believe and to love. And those that went out from us wouldn't do that. That's right. And the Antichrist wouldn't do that. And the no. false teachers wouldn't do that. But yes, they went out. Yeah, 219. So yeah. Yeah, went uh, out Are you sort of saying that the sin John is focused on here is not doing that? Unbelief and abuse of the body of Christ. That is the one essential commandment, isn't it? I mean, after the belief. That you belief, love one another. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you have yeah, to have the belief. John, 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 yeah, John 629. But is that, that the right one? That person who the said they were absolutely perfectly sinless. I'm sorry, Robin, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, which isn't even a category that we can think of. You certainly didn't read First John very closely because it says right in there that he he says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in. Well, I, was, I remember right where I was driving my car the other day after I had talked to that guy. And I was thinking about that. Where we have to be sinless or we're children of the devil. And Why did Christ come? When I start <laughs> thinking, I was... Right? Well, here's the thing. If the way we are now, even so right this moment, driving my car, I can't think of some horrible sin I'm doing. But even at that, if this is it, I was hoping for a lot better. I can tell you one sin you're doing while you're driving your car. Getting mad at somebody? No, you're not loving God perfectly. I know. But see, that's <laughs> my whole point. What, right. There, where's the better? If this is sinlessness now, yeah. what's... What happens after the resurrection? I was thinking it's going to be better. Right, right. So um, that's why, I, um, you know, we really need to put all this in context of what John's trying to say. That's very. But I want to bring. That's up not like that's so easy to believe in the Son of God and to love one another. That's not like some easy thing to do. We need to. I'll bring up one thing here, and we're just about out of time, but. John 1, 2, 19, where it says they went out from us because they were not of us. But if you remember a long time ago when we were just forming our church and we had talked about we were going to have classes for new members and such, and we, and we went a different direction. Well, the reason we went the different direction and eliminated the classes was it's exactly 1 John 2, 19, because we feel 
that if you're going to sit in this church and hear the gospel proclaimed every week after week after week and get told that you're a rotten, lousy sinner and you need a savior and you hear the gospel week after week, you know, the full counsel of God proclaimed, you're going to leave. And so we could teach classes and we could interview people and there's the visible and there's the invisible church and we don't know who's whom. We don't know <laughs> sitting in this room. We don't know each other's heart, only God does. And so we said, for now, since we had our plate full anyways, what we're going to do is just go with the application form, let people give their testimony, explain the gospel, and, and uh, agree with our bylaws. And, and if they're willing to sit here in this church week after week, God will add them to the church, and who are we to keep them from it? And, and so that's, that's why we've gone to the membership process that we have. So just a little word of explanation. That could change once we get some deacons. Uh, and people who aren't members are yeah. still considered, though, essential part of the church. Oh, oh amen. Absolutely. Thank you, Christy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm sorry I, I didn't mention that. Yeah, membership's not a requirement at all. It's just uh, if you want to take make that commitment, and, and uh, uh, we think that's a good thing. But, and you can vote. That's the big part of our church is our bylaws. So we can protect against what happened to us at the last church most of us were at. And we can uh, vote on issues of eldership and other important matters. So that's a big part. The more we have, the better voting base we have and the, 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 the better decisions will get made. So thank you for you who are members. And you're not. That's, that's good too. <laughs> yeah. So, um, anybody else have anything else that they were hoping that we'd get to in First John today? I mean, I, I skipped over a lot, guys, and maybe I'll, I'll pick up and, with a little more preparation time, um, deal with some more of these issues. But uh, right now, I feel pretty good. I got the first one under my belt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. Room for improvement. Um, Always is. Anything else, or should I just close in prayer? Thank you for teaching us. Mm. Thank you for not falling asleep. Um, <laughs> Peter was just, he was deep in thought. Yeah. All right, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for each and every one of those people in this room today and for their love for you and their for commitment to you and their desire to grow in holiness and insurance and joy. And I just ask that they further uh, uh, read your epistles and all your gospels and, and uh, scripture, Heavenly Father, and that will be accomplished. We just thank you so much for your son and our salvation. And we thank you for this... Uh, this congregation, this fellowship here, Gospel of Grace Fellowship, for all the people that love the Lord so much and uh, just help us grow in love for one another, Heavenly Father. Help us with our prayer life, too. Help us become prayer warriors, Heavenly Father, that we will have uh, more intimacy and get to know you better and that we will follow your commandments more and more. We pray these things in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you all.